curiosity may be one of the most powerful forces in the world. It gets us sniffing, but it's often not easy. Our preferred state is inertia. Only when something jumps from the brush or goes bump in the night do we start to pay attention. We've evolved to conserve energy and live in a culture that promotes that inertia. But there are rewards for those who dig at small things. Curiosity, said Alton Brown, is the most powerful force on earth. Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, is built on a foundation of curiosity. The entrepreneur must believe there are secrets to find, writes Thiel. When we ask why, say, that's interesting, or pause to take note, that's curiosity, but curiosity takes work. Sometimes our digging will leave us empty-handed, but the digging bestows calloused hands. The digging strengthens our backs. Digging itself is the reward. Other times we'll be curious and we'll start digging and end up with something we don't want. A bad taste when we expected a good meal. This is one of those times. If you listen to this episode, you're going to see the world as a little less rosy and a little more bloody. It may be unpleasant, but unpleasantness is good. Unpleasantness drives growth. Strain increases stamina. Today's story is 20 years old. This story isn't for car rides or long runs or other people. This story is for a quiet moment. It's for sitting and thinking. It's a story about how we make the world a better place, fail, cry, and become stronger. This is a story about the pain of curiosity. This is the story of Enrique Camarena. Our story begins in the run-up to World War II, when the Roosevelt administration asked Mexican suppliers for more opium. Opium makes morphine, and as Robert Saviano writes in his book, Zero, 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 you don't go to war without morphine. Quote, The United States was preparing for war, and before the guns, before the bullets, tanks, planes, and aircraft carriers, before the uniforms and boots, before everything else, the United States needed morphine. You don't go to war without morphine. If any of you have been in pain, excruciating pain, you know what morphine is, peace from suffering. You don't go to war without morphine because war is suffering, broken bones and lacerated flesh. There are treaties and demonstrations, candles and pickets for people's outrage, but for burning flesh, there's only one thing, morphine, end quote. The United States gets the opium, even building a railroad for the transportation between the two countries. Decades later, a police officer named Miguel Angel Felix Garaldo, or El Padrino, enters the scene, again from Saviano's book. Quote, As a police officer, he tracked smugglers, studied their methods, uncovered their routes, arrested them. He knew everything. He hunted them down. Eventually, he would go to their bosses and propose that they organize, but under one condition, that they choose him as their boss. Whoever accepted became part of the organization. Whoever preferred to remain independent was free to do so, and later killed. El Padrino creates the Mexican cartel, an organization that sets prices, production levels, and distribution. El Padrino is the cocaine czar. He had good timing. In the early 1980s, Pablo Escobar's operation in Colombia was facing more and more challenges getting cocaine into the United States. Escobar was also fighting with rival cartels. 
Under El Padrino, the Mexicans would get the cocaine into the United States, taking payment in product. It was a win-win if El Padrino could balance himself between the cartels. In the law, El Padrino had to pay off everyone, every mayor, every checkpoint, every police officer. It was an orchestra to get all the participants singing the same song to the same tune. El Padrino needed a conductor. He got Kiki. Kiki was a virtuoso. He could get drugs anywhere and, with time, would earn the trust of El Padrino and his lieutenants like Caro Quintero and Pablo Escobar. Soon, Kiki got to know about El Buffalo, the two-square-mile farm with 10,000 peasant farmers responsible for a large chunk of marijuana growth in Mexico that was distributed all over the world. El Padrino needed for Kiki to get even more of the El Buffalo gold out of Mexico and into the world. Kiki did. But on November 6, 1984, Kiki also got people in. From Saviano's book again. Quote, On the morning of November 6, 1984, 450 Mexican soldiers invaded El Buffalo. Helicopters rained down soldiers who ripped up marijuana plants and seized what had already been harvested, entire bales for drying and chopping. Between what was sequestered and what was burned, $8 billion worth of weed went up in smoke. A buffalo and all its plantings were under the control of Rafael Caro Quintero's clan, and it operated with the full protection of the police and army. The ranch was vast and was the main economic resource of the area. Everyone profited from El Buffalo. Caro Quintero couldn't believe that with all the money he had invested to oil the machine, to bribe the police and the army, a military operation of this scale could have escaped his notice. Even the military planes in the area would notify him before taking off ask for his authorization. No one could understand what happened. The Mexicans must have been pressured by the Americans. The DEA, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, must have stuck its nose in El Buffalo's business. Carl Quintero and El Padrino were alarmed. The two shared a deep trust. They co-founded the organization that held the monopoly on drug trafficking in Mexico. They asked everyone who worked for them, at every level, to investigate everyone in their pay, because they should have known about the raid in advance. Normally, they were warned if the authorities were going to strike, and they themselves would make sure some drugs were found, a good amount if the police officer responsible had news cameras with him or needed to climb the ranks, a little less if he wasn't one of their men. Kiki talked with everyone, with Don Nito, with El Padrino's political cronies. End quote. Kiki was a DEA agent, and Kiki was the common thread. If this were a movie and we were sitting in the theater watching this revelation happen. Our grip would tighten on the armrest of our chair. Our heartbeat would accelerate. Our blood pressure would rise. The gig is up. The secret's out. Only Kiki doesn't know. He's picked up in front of the U.S. consulate and taken to a house to be tortured. Saviano again. Quote, They wanted to know how much Kiki had already talked and who the other members of his team were. They started with slaps in the face and punches to his Adam's apple to take his breath away. They blindfolded him, tied his hands, and then broke his nose and the bone above his eyes. When he lost consciousness, his torturers called the doctor. They washed the blood off and splashed ice water on him until he came to. Kiki wept from the pain, but he didn't talk. They asked how the DEA got its information. Who gave it to them? They wanted names, but there were no names. They didn't believe him. They tied electric wires to his testicles and started giving him shocks. The tape records screams and thuds as his body was hurled in the air by the electric current. Then, 
Kiki's hands and feet tied to a chair, one of his torturers placed a screw on his head and began turning. The screw entered his skull, piercing flesh and bone. The pain was excruciating. End quote. The torture gets worse. We know this because Al Padrino ordered to, it to be recorded. He wanted to set an example. The judge who ultimately presided over this case didn't sleep for weeks. Policemen who had to transcribe the recordings vomited and asked to be transferred to a different responsibility. Kiki never talked because there was nothing to say. He acted alone. It's why he lasted so long. His superiors gave the okay, and one man who thought one big fish was more valuable than a thousand little ones infiltrated the Mexican drug cartels. One more quote from Saviano's book. Quote, The murder of Kiki Camarena and all that ensued represents a turning point in the fight against Mexican drug trafficking. The level of impunity that the cartels enjoyed was revealed. To kidnap a DEA agent in plain daylight, right outside the U.S. consulate, and then torture and kill him far exceeded anything they had done in the past, all they had dared to do up until that moment. Kiki had been remarkably insightful. He had understood before anyone else that the structure had changed and that it had become much more than a band of gangsters and smugglers. He understood that they were now battling drug managers. He understood that the first step was to break the ties between institutions and traffickers. He understood that mass arrests of the small-time henchmen who do the dirty work were pointless if they didn't behead the boss, if they didn't radically alter the dynamics that allowed the bosses to flood the market with money and go stronger. Kiki had understood what the United States has trouble grasping even today. You have to strike at the head. You have to hit the bosses, the big bosses. The limbs merely carry out orders. He had also understood that the producers were weakening compared with the distributors. It's a law of economics and thus also of drug trafficking. The Colombian producers were in crisis, as were the Medellin and Cali cartels, as were the FARC fighter groups, the revolutionary armed forces of Colombia. Kiki's death ignited American public opinion about the drug problem in a completely new way. After his body was found, many Americans, starting in Calexico, California, Kiki's hometown, began wearing red ribbons, a symbol of pain and profanation of flesh. And they asked people to stop doing drugs in the name of the sacrifice Kiki had made in the war against drugs. In California, they organized Red Ribbon Week, a campaign that later spread throughout the country. It is still celebrated every October as part of a drug prevention campaign. That's the story of Red Ribbon Week. Learning Kiki's story and reading the book was uncomfortable. I assumed Red Ribbon Week was a paternalistic shepherding exercise. It's kind of that, but it's more than that too. That's the benefit of curiosity. It moves us from a place of ignorance to one of understanding. Kiki's story also tells us how systems work. The drug trade system that Kiki saw before anyone else was only susceptible at the top. Every system has rules, and it functions in one way because of those rules. At another level, the rules change. In Saviano's book, he takes the reader through time and space, from the 60s to the aughts, from the Pacific coast of Mexico to the shores of Italy. These stories are what investors call out-of-sample tests. If something is true regardless of time and place, then it's more likely to be true than something that isn't true regardless of time or place. Here's how Ray Dalio explained this to Tim Ferriss. I have a rule in, in terms of most of my decision making. is it, it has to be timeless and universal. 
So timeless means if I take a period of time um, it, where the correlations or that which I'm discovering true in all of those periods of time, and I like to deal with universal. What I mean by universal is that if if I have a decision rule or equities or bonds or an asset class or something, and I see its behavior, did it behave the same in another country and another country? Drugs are a great investment. Altria, the cigarette company, earned 20% annualized returns from 1968 to 2015. That's despite a decrease in usage, more regulation, and rising litigation costs. Drugs won't die because people live for drugs. In Saviano's out-of-sample tests, we see one leader rise only to fall and have another take his place. One criminal group replaces another. Drugs are robust. Maybe even drugs are anti-fragile. I thought this prologue from Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, was especially helpful. Quote, We see that the idea is to focus on fragility rather than predicting and calculating future probabilities, and that fragility and anti-fragility come on a spectrum of varying degrees. The task here is to build a map of exposures. The triad classifies items in three columns across this designation. Fragile, robust, anti-fragile. Recall that the fragile wants tranquility, the anti-fragile grows from disorder, and the robust doesn't care too much. The reader is invited to navigate the triad to see how the ideas of the book apply across domains. Simply, in a given subject, when you discuss an item or a policy, the task is to find in which category of the triad one should put it, and what to do in order to improve its condition. For example, the centralized nation-state on the far left of the triad, squarely in the fragile category, and a decentralized system of city-states on the far right, in the anti-fragile one." End quote. So using Tlaib's triad, we can identify where these drug cartels go. Drug cartels are robust, and they may even be anti-fragile, and so identifying their category can help us further understand them. One more book segment. This is from Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens. Quote, How can we distinguish what is biologically determined from what people merely try to justify through biological myths? A good rule of thumb is, biology enables, culture forbids. Biology is willing to tolerate a very wide spectrum of possibilities. It's culture that obligates people to realize some possibilities while forbidding others. Biology enables women to have children. Some cultures oblige women to realize this possibility. Biology enables men to enjoy sex with one another. Some cultures forbid them to realize this possibility. Culture tends to argue that it forbids only which is unnatural. But from a biological perspective, nothing is unnatural. Whatever is possible is by definition also natural. A truly unnatural behavior, one that goes against the laws of nature, simply cannot exist, so it would need no prohibition." End quote. Red Ribbon Week is our culture. Drugs are our biology. Biology and culture mesh to form our system. Things that survive despite obstacles, like drugs or Bitcoin, are people who don't look the part tell us that biology is stronger than culture. Things like Red Ribbon Week are reminders of this balance. Each ribbon is an attempt at culture to sway biology. That's what Enrique Camarena tried to do. 
Thanks for listening.